Welcome to the re-release project of the Keeping Things Alive podcast, which is the republication of episodes that were originally recorded and published between 2016 and 2020 out of Western New York. My name is Laura Evans. I'm a former environmental lawyer, planner, and nonprofit staffer. I also wrote a book called Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, living, and interconnected planet Earth. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Keeping Things Alive podcast. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Sister Eileen O'Connor. She has been a Sister of Mercy with the Catholic Church since 1956, which means she has been a nun for over 60 years. She's worked tirelessly for many social justice issues, and we'll hear about that in the interview. She also, for her day job with the Sisters of Mercy, was a teacher. I met Sister Eileen at the Interfaith Climate Justice Community meeting a few months ago. We both were working in the investment divestment group, and I was very impressed with her knowledge of how to use investing and divesting for social good. She's been at it for a very long time and had a lot to teach others in the group. She is also a leader of the 2015 Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign. Roger Cook, who I spoke with in another interview, they have been friends for a very long time, and he asked her what um, the Catholic Church and the Sisters of Mercy were going to do um, about the Pope's encyclical coming out. And so she took that question very seriously, and as part of the Rise Up for Climate Justice campaign, she gave a, a couple of talks about the encyclical and what that meant because she has such a much deeper knowledge of Catholic teachings and encyclicals. So we talk about that in the interview as well. It was really wonderful to sit down and speak with her. This interview is a little shorter, but it's full of really great stories and information and just provides this really wonderful perspective on how to live a life of service. It was an honor to meet with Sister Eileen and talk with her, and I really hope that you enjoy my interview with Sister Eileen O'Connor. Hello, I'm here with Sister Eileen O'Connor, and I'm going to let her get right into it. So Sister Eileen, if someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer them? (laughs) Um, I would say, uh, although I have retired from what I call paid ministry, I don't get paid for anything I do, but, um, I have a, I have a passion for social justice and as a sister of mercy, we have what we call five critical concerns for all of us. And, uh, care for the earth, reverence for the earth, especially the human right to water is one of our one of our five concerns. The other the others are women, nonviolence, racism and immigration. And uh, so I've 
was sensitized to issues of reverence for the earth many, many years ago through our sisters in the Philippines who were early on recognizing some of the changes their country was going through in terms of climate change. How do you communicate with uh, sisters around the world? How did they voice their concerns to you all the way in Buffalo? Yeah, well, the reason particularly for the Philippines is because we have a mission in the Philippines. We've been there for 50-some years. And um, so we have very close relationships with our sisters there, and they are the ones that communicated to us what was happening in their country and uh, helped us realize the importance of working together, really, uh, on issues of... uh, of climate justice. We weren't calling it climate justice in those days, but we are, you know, that's the work we're doing. Yeah, what were the things that they noticed were happening to their country that was different than things yeah, before? Yeah, much more frequent um, typhoons, a great disruption in their lives. It's an island country. There's 7,000 islands in the Philippines. Our sisters are also in one of the poorest if not the poorest area of the Philippines. And that's why we're there to work with among those who are who need us most. And they were recognizing things like that and uh, uh, calling our attention to the fact there was massive deforestation. I was able to visit the Philippines in 1990, and what struck me right away was the deforestation. So our sisters were involved in replanting trees, things like that. Wow, that's great. Mm-hmm. Do they still do those types of service Absolutely. projects? Absolutely, and they have a lot of, uh, they have, we have schools there, so they do a lot of teaching of, of the environmental issues in our schools. And uh, yes, so they're very involved in those kinds of reclaiming activities for their, for their land. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So what made, out of the five um, things that you talked about of concern, what made you... Uh, lean towards the care for the earth and environmental work? Mm. Was there a particular moment in your past or something you gravitated towards? Well, Laura, I don't know if I can point to a particular moment, but I've always absolutely loved the outdoors. And um, I walk a lot outdoors. And to me, the earth is really precious. And I... I have a great concern for future generations, even though obviously I don't have children or grandchildren, but I care about all children. And I want them, I want our children, our future, to have the ability to breathe clean air and to play in in clean fields and to enjoy clean water. So that's why I do it. I pay basically for future generations. Yeah, I I agree. Mm -hmm. That sounds good. So, before we were recording, you were explaining to me how there's different work um, to help people in need, but also your definition of social justice work. I really liked right. how you explained that. Right. Can you kind of go into your the story and then your explanation of what social justice Shall work is? Shall I tell is? the story? Yeah, go for okay, it. I, I like okay. it a lot. So this is a story of social analysis and it's called The Babies in the River. I did not make this up, of course. And this is a story about a person who's walking along a village near a river, 
and sees a baby floating in the river. So she jumps in and gets the baby out of the river. And the next day she went back and there were two babies in the river. So she got a friend and they jumped in and and got the babies. And then pretty soon there were four babies and then eight babies. And so they worked on getting a whole group of people to be rescuers. And pretty soon a little community started to develop around older women, made little layouts for the babies and clothes and blankets and things like that. Pretty soon um, more and more people came and the priest even came and blessed the work of the group because they were doing good work getting the babies out of the river. So one day, one of the women said, you know, I, I really would like to go upstream and find out two things. I'd like to know who put the babies in the river, and secondly, why? So I figure if we go upstream, we can find out what's causing this problem in the first place, the source of the problem. And uh, but the the powers that be, the authorities said, no, no, no. You know, we need every able-bodied person here. So they just went on with their lives. The more and more babies were were uh, saved, and more and more people were um, helping to save the babies. But other than that, nothing changed. So where? Yeah, that's I I like that. So you would kind of explain that the social justice piece of that story would be going up the river? Going up the river. And that's why very often in any kind of really social justice work, we find ourselves countercultural. We are going against the stream. And that happens all the time. And when we're really uh, very proactive and that, we get called names, you know, bleeding heart liberals, um, some of our sisters in in, our, in the developing countries are even called communists because, as as one cardinal said, when I feed the hungry, they call me a saint. But when I question why they are hungry, they call me a communist. So things like this happen have happened through the, I suppose, through forever. Mm-hmm. So when you question what's going on, you always run the risk of upsetting the the status quo. Yeah, what have your experiences been with going upstream, and how how do you implement that either now or throughout your work? Well, in my life? in my youth, when I had a lot more energy, um, I participated in many public demonstrations, marches, things like that, visiting uh, legislators in Washington, lobbying for our concerns, being in touch with our local legislators. Um, all that kind of thing, letter writing, education, all those kinds of things. Uh, one time when we were we were protesting the the terrible war in El Salvador, we went to the federal building here in Buffalo with signs uh, about oh, so many people who had been killed in El Salvador, and we lay down on the ground and covered ourselves with these sheets and. Uh, one of the police officers says, I, I just can't bring myself to, to arrest a nun. <laughs> but they've brought themselves to arrest nuns. Nuns have been in prison, as have, as have priests. I haven't gone to that extent. but uh, So those are the kinds of things we do. So it's, educa- it's research, it's education, it's sensitizing, it's developing relationships in the community, it's trying to work with as many people in, in whatever category working together for the same aim. 
Yeah. What have your experiences, because you've always been in, in Western New York doing right. this kind of work, right? right. Yeah. What, uh, can you compare like the seventies and the work that you were doing then to what's happening now? Do you see a difference in the social climate? Um, does it change? Or well, there's a there's a very toxic uh, political climate right now that I did not experience in the 70s. It was terrible. The 70s, the 60s and the 70s especially. Oh, my gosh. Um, in the 60s, we had three major assassinations, President John Kennedy, his, his brother Robert Kennedy, and then Martin Luther King Jr. There were massive demonstrations against the war in Vietnam, so there was a lot of upheaval. Um, uh, it was a, a difficult time, but we came through that. I did not experience, I did not feel then the toxic polarization that I experienced today, um, which is scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, social media. It has to do with the ability of people now to contact millions of people anonymously with anonymous um, remarks that are hateful. None of that existed in those days. Now it does, and there's no accountability for so many so many of those hateful things that are going on. So that's to me, that's very different. Right? How have you? How do you deal with that, or what is your approach to working on issues now in light of that kind of toxicity? Uh, <clears throat> well, Laura, all we can do is just keep seeking the truth. In, in my opinion, uh, what matters is truth. And so we just keep searching for that. We spend a bit of time, frankly, in reflection, quiet reflection, and prayer. Prayer is very important to me and to the people that I work with. When we start our social justice meetings, we always begin with prayer. And we try to recognize that we are agents for God's work, and we're trying to do God's work the best way we know how. And so it's always that concern for the other, especially the other most in need. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so tell me about your early experiences with uh, growing up in Buffalo and then making the decision to become a nun. Okay. I grew up in a very religious Catholic family, a large Catholic family. I have nine siblings. Um. And religion was very important, especially to my mother. And so I had 12 years of Catholic education. Um, it was always in the way we were taught and always in our mind that we had a responsibility to the neighbor, to especially those most in need. And I always wanted to do something, you know, for others. Um, and then gradually over time, I had uh, two relatives, nuns, a cousin and an aunt that were Sisters of Mercy. And I think I was influenced by them. And uh, so there came a point when I was 18, I had graduated from high school and I had worked for one year. And I thought, uh, I think God might be asking me to become a nun. And so I thought, well, I'll at least give it a try. That was my intention, that I would give it a try. And frankly, I I thought I'd get it out of my system. (laughs) 
and I could go on being normal like every other woman and get married and have kids. I thought that's what my life was going to be, and it didn't turn out that way. <laughs> how how far did you move? Like how far away was? Oh no, I right in the city. Right in the so city. So I didn't okay. have to. I did not have to go out of town or anything. So it was right in the city. Although when I entered the convent, it was in the year 1956. We were very strict, and so we didn't have much contact with our families the first couple of years at all. Mm-hmm. We didn't go out to visit them or anything. Very, very rarely they could come over and visit us for an hour or so in the convent. But those were the old days. It was very strict in those days. So it wasn't always easy. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just felt this is where God was calling me. And then as you spent time there, how long was it before you decided to pursue teaching? Actually, Laura, it was because we did what we were told. <laughs> oh, okay. So did they think that you would make a good teacher right. and there was a need? Okay. That's exactly it. Our major Sisters of Mercy, our major ministries are teaching, health care, and social work. Those are major. Uh, so almost all our sisters would land in one of those three. So it was it was the authorities that told us, well, I think we need te- we certainly need lots of teachers. We had many, many schools. So we have lots of teachers and a lot of nurses, too, because we had three hospitals. And um, so that's where I was assigned. Yeah. That's good. So what did you, what did you teach your students, or how did you approach uh, their education? Um, well... I did my best preparing as as much as I could. We were also given, thank, thank goodness, we had excellent teachers in our congregation. So when we started out, we had mentors who would meet with us every single week and help us plan our lessons for the next week. So we were working closely one-on-one with, uh, with the master teachers. So that really helped us a lot. Why I was particularly focused on junior high in the beginning, I'm not exactly sure, but I was, and I loved, I loved teaching junior high. I'm not so sure I could do it anymore, though. So. <laughs> um, and in those days, in the early days, we taught every subject. Yeah, so you just did the best you could. Yeah. So I'm going to switch a little bit to the reason you were... Um, the reason that I reached out to you to speak to you is that Roger Cook, uh, who I just spoke with recently, had said that you would be a great person to talk to. So how did you meet Roger? And you told me earlier that your paths crossed a lot, but yeah. where did that come from? <laughs> oh, we have, a, we have a great story. So I was working at a full-time um, justice organization was called the Center for Justice. It was run by women religious. Four different congregations of us were working there together. And we um, were sent there by our congregations. We, we, we asked if we could do that. And um, so we didn't get salaries or anything. Our, everything was donated services. It was a ministry of four different congregations of women religious. So I was there. I was also on the board at that time of Mercy Hospital. I was on the board of trustees. So I ran into Roger, and he said something like this. Uh, you know, your nuns down in Mercy Hospital are not supporting the union, and we know Catholic social teaching that says way back all over 100 years Workers have the right to organize and to bargain collectively. 
and we support that. He said, so we know what your Catholic social teaching is, <laughs> and your sisters are not all, not all your sisters are following. So it was a very interesting, challenging time. Um, but uh, so that in fact, he reminded me when we got together a couple of years ago. He said, remember, we had a little go-around <laughs> with you. <laughs> so what I did at that time, I called our major superior and asked her to meet with Roger and his friends in the, in the Peace Center and to talk about Catholic social teaching and the rights of workers to organize and to bargain collectively. So, um, so that's kind of, we kind of laughed about it that we had a little mm mm. And uh, it worked out fine. And then through the years, a, a number of different events that would have occurred when we started the war in Afghanistan and, and the whole problem with Syria. And we would often have gatherings, and I would run into Rajas at many of those same gatherings. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then fast forward a little bit more. How did you get involved with the climate justice movement? And as you you were telling me before it, it also has to do with the encyclical. So right. Right. I would I'd love to hear more about that and where you, where you got Okay, so in. so it was March, I think around March of 2015 and I got an email from Roger and a couple of other men and said uh, so how the question was so how are the Catholics getting ready for the encyclical? And I thought it was such an excellent question. And I said, you know what, let's get together and talk about this because we really do need to do something. So anyway, we did. We gathered some people and started talking about what we could do when the encyclical came out. We were waiting for it. The encyclical came out at the end of June, and right away we studied it. I certainly studied it. My first talk on the encyclical was to the Sierra Club. So this would be people, that many of them not Catholic, uh, but very enthusiastic about the encyclical because the Pope in the encyclical, what's revolutionary about it for a lot of climate justice folks is the Pope said we need to approach climate change from a spiritual standpoint. And we need to see the connection between what we do to the earth and what we do to people. Yeah, I love that part. Yes, that. that's very important. So the, the, the relationship to the earth, so the care of the earth and care of the poor are closely linked, and he says that throughout the whole encyclical. Yeah, what um, what resonated with you the most out of that out of the encyclical? So I can see why climate justice advocates would like that, and I know you're you're one of them. But yes, as a yes. as someone who's devoted their life to this, what what really struck you? Well, it was so affirming because. See, we have a history of popes writing encyclicals. In fact, I laughed when I, t- when I spoke at the Sierra Club. I said, it makes me laugh that the word encyclical is tripping off the tongue as if you folks all know what you're talking. <laughs> Many Catholics don't even know encyclicals. Um, so the encyclicals, the story of the encyclicals started in 18, it was it 1893 when the Pope first wrote about, the again, the rights of workers to organize and bargain collectively. And uh, so popes build on each one's encyclical. So through the through these years, since since the late 19th century, early 19th century, um, popes build one on the other. So Pope, when Pope Francis came, I, number one, we were surprised he wrote an encyclical so soon after he was elected. It was like, oh my goodness. 
um, and that it came out so strongly in favor of looking at the earth, the care of the earth. He said, "What we have, what we are leaving our future children is." He called it a pile of filth. That's mm-hmm. the words he used in the translation, of course. Um, and so that that spiritual dimension was something other people had not brought out. And again, building on encyclicals of the past, that our task is to educate people along spiritual lines as well as practical lines. It's a combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, yeah, I've, I've never read an encyclical before, but my mom brought it home from the library and I started looking at it kind of a little skeptical, but sure. I mean... The first couple of paragraphs just pulled me in right away. Mm-hmm. And as I've been talking with other people about this climate justice movement, it seems to have done the same thing for them, regardless of their religious backgrounds, which, exactly. I mean, he's he wrote it to everyone on earth. So that's why right. I that's feel what like the word encyclical means. It means to the earth, to the okay. world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really <clears throat> liked it. So you were brought in to educate others about the encyclical, and that was in the spring. Then can you tell me about your experiences, either, you know, just that, that fall and getting ready for the climate talks? How, how are you involved with? Well, I was giving talks on the encyclical to a number of different groups. I talked a few times to different groups of our own sisters. We got copy, full copies of the encyclical. My copy was on ditto paper, you know, print paper, and I had it all marked up and highlighted and all that kind of thing. So we were doing that. We had study groups talking about that. We talked about that in our parish. We did a whole lot of, um, of uh, education but the truth is, I think we've only scratched the surface, and I think there's still a whole lot of people, including a lot of Catholics, who don't know about the encyclical. So it's a, it's an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing project of constant education. So it's an education, and an example kind of thing, how we live. So one of the one of the four issues that the interfaith climate justice community is working on now is called creation spirituality or living simply. So that's, that's a direct challenge to each one of us individually. How do we live? How do we handle the excess that's all around us? You know, all those kinds of things. So that's a challenge that I was continuing to educate people on. Yeah. I, I like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's over either. Mm. I mean, it's mm. it's only beginning, but Absolutely. it was a pretty, it was a good, robust beginning. That's good, I, yes. I guess. Yes. Um, yeah, how, do you have any ideas of how to educate more people on this or spread the word? Because I, I, I understand, you know, people being a little hesitant about, if well, if they're Catholic or not, to get involved with an encyclical. However, it it's so to me, it's the most articulate and important thing that's ever been written about this. And there's been a lot written. I I was in Portland a few weeks ago, and I went to Powell's Books, and I looked at the climate change section and I had no idea that there were literally hundreds of books already written about climate change and then another hundred or more books on renewable energy 
because that's always been you know my thing like oh if only I could write the perfect book but Mm. I I think it exists and I think it's the encyclical Mm -hmm. and so I don't know if you have any ideas Mm of where to how to keep going you know that's that's a very good question Laura we just keep on keeping on that's all I can say when the opportunity raises uh, itself is raised for us then we we do the education that we need to do um we offer we offer it regularly in our parish we have a very active catholic parish and we bring up issues of the environment and and the encyclical all the time as do many many catholic parishes but not all there's still a lot of even catholic parishes that need um to be reminded about the encyclical and and some specifics on it. So whenever we have the opportunity to teach about it, we do. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the interfaith climate community. I've talked to Roger and Linda about it, but I'm particularly interested in what you know about the group within the climate justice community that, you know, the working group on investment and divestment. Mm. Can you explain, mm-hmm. first of all, what investment divestment is and then why the Sisters of Mercy are so experienced in this particular yeah. area? Um, we started working on investing in a social justice dimension way, way back I was representing my congregation in that uh, back in the 80s, I think it was. Um, And we basically uh, found our inspiration in the interfaith climate. I mean, I'm getting mixed up now. Uh, It's ICCR, interfaith for social responsibility, it's escaping me right now, but it's it's based in New York. It's religious group, so Protestants actually started what, what kind of what they called socially responsible uh, investing. Okay. Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility is what it is. Interfaith Center for Corporate Responsibility. And it was started by Protestants who were looking at their portfolios and wondering how they could do well while they're doing good. So that's kind of what brought uh, sisters into it. We didn't know we even had that many investments in the old days. We, we didn't. Um, but we had some. And um, so we began to say, okay, we we do have to uh, earn money, especially nowadays. I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, we, all, we want to do well while we're doing good. So we want to invest our money only in good organizations. So we started modeling ourselves on many of those Protestant groups. And so I did that. So then when the Sisters of Mercy became united, 25 different congregations of Sisters of Mercy united into one, which is what we are now, then we brought with us, each one of those congregations brought with us a a fairly good portfolio of investments. So together we incorporated, we called ourselves Mercy Investments Incorporated, so that we have people, lay people, uh, uh, handling our, our blended funds uh, on issues of, co- of social responsibility. So we have various criteria that we will not invest, we, we call uh, screens. Yeah, I wanted you to explain screening. Mm-hmm. 
We will not invest in organizations, for instance, as far as possible. Now, sometimes you you have to invest in bundles of corporations, so it's not always easy as it it used to be. But um, we go percentage-wise, anyway. Um, We don't invest in nuclear weapons or uh, bombs, or recently we added specifically guns because of the proliferation of guns in our society now. We do not invest in um, drugs that promote abortion. We do not invest in tobacco, uh, any related uh, investments concerned with tobacco, uh, nor pornography of any kind. And so we say when, when we do that, when we screen out, well, then where do we want our money to be invested? So we want our money to be invested in companies that have a better track record of of uh, investing wisely uh, in good things. So we're spending a significant amount of our investments now on renewable energy corporations. A lot of it's going there. And, of course, a lot of our investments are global. We have sisters all over the world also, not just Sisters of Mercy, but, you know, groups all over the world. So we're very interested and very concerned about, let's say, mining in Peru, Mm-hmm. When people, whole populations are being displaced or, you know, places like that, Argentina. So um, because we have relationships there, then we're very concerned that our investments support the people there as well. Do you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Can you also talk about the strategy of investing in companies that maybe aren't doing good, but then your power to influence them by yeah. investing so our our group our mercy investments incorporated knows we've had conversations with bill mckibben of you know 350.org and he is calling and rightly so i understand for divestment uh from fossil fuels mm-hmm. and so we've had the conversation uh several different committees of our group have had the conversation at least five or six times uh, how is mercy being called to divest from fossil fuels and to what extent and all this and that? So what we say is we will certainly put more of our investments in good corporations that have that leave a, uh, a good foot, carbon footprint. Um, but um, we do want to stay at the table in some of the corporations so that we have an opinion, so that we can continue to influence the corporation. This is what we want to do. So what that means is lots of letters, lots of conversations, and very often personal meetings, and then certainly attendance at shareholder meetings. Our, our group, uh, our, invest, our uh, managers who do our stocks and all that, go to meetings and, and testify at stockholder or shareholder meetings about the concerns about the corporation. So, you know, uh, we haven't actually set an exact limit. I know um, uh, Merle Showers, who represents the Methodist Church, and they have a they have an outside year of 10 years. If, if they haven't made a dent with a corporation in over a 10-year period, then they completely withdraw. <clears throat> so we're kind of sort of in that in that area, but we still strongly feel that if we if we take all our money out of the fossil fuels, then other people will put it in anyway, and we won't have a voice. We have no more voice. Yeah, I, I hadn't <clears throat> really thought of that before, and I think I I I do love the 
divestment campaign. I think it is really important. But I, I also like how you are thinking about, yes, yeah, still having a voice. Mm-hmm. And then also really thinking about where you want to invest. And because if you just take everything out, you're not putting it back into something meaningful. So that's right. Yeah. I I do like the renewable energy stuff. And I think we were talking about this the other week, but you also have screening, not just for investments, but for places you go. I think the example was maybe a hotel or something. There was a, um, a conference and right. so I just I really like the intentionality of all of your choices so can yeah. you explain that so what we do now and, and again we've done this for a number of years is if we have a meeting at a hotel <clears throat> we look ahead we do some research about the hotel in the first place so we will ask what's your uh, how do you behave environmentally do you reduce, reuse, recycle? Uh, you know all these different things. What's your carbon footprint? Um, are your employees? Have you trained your employees to look for signs of sex trafficking? Because uh, a human traffic, I could say, sometimes often it's sex trafficking, but it's other labor trafficking also. Um, have you trained your employees to look for signs of that? Because very often it's at these various hotels that, that people are trafficked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so looking for signs like that and, and how do you treat your how do you treat your employees? Things like that. So we do some background check of a, of a hotel. Uh, the, in other words, if, if a hotel is notorious for whatever, you know, massive waste or something like that we would want to know about that Mm -hmm. yeah 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 that's wonderful Mm -hmm. well i'm going to it's not quite wrapping up yet but kind of get to the questions i like to ask towards the end and the first one is what is the work that you're doing right now that you're the most passionate about because although you are retired you have not stopped so what what's really gripping Mm -hmm. you right Mm -hmm. now um, <clears throat> I think what I am most passionate about is climate justice. I'd have to say that. Um, I do, I do care a great deal about immigration. I think it's huge right now, and uh, our social justice committee is focusing on it more than we did maybe in the past. So right now, because of the terrible political climate we're in, immigration is a very important issue as well. Um, certainly, like I said, uh, human trafficking, homelessness, there's so many, so many different issues. And the interesting thing is, Laura, when you start working on these issues, you recognize the connections among all of them. They're very much related. Yeah, how are they related? Well, I, I was imagining... Supposing there's this woman who had to leave, let's say the Philippines, I'll just use that as an example, because of an environmental crisis that they had, and she had to leave. She lost her home and lost her family or whatever. So she has to leave, and then she comes to another place like, like the United States. And uh, so she already, she is, number one, she's a woman, so she's at risk. Let's say she's a minority woman. Let's say if she's Filipina, okay, she's dark-skinned. She's got, so she's a minority woman. 
She's subject to violence because she's a woman, because she's a minority woman. Um, she's an immigrant, and it's all because of what we've done to the earth. So when I look at this one situation, I think this person has been affected by all five of our sister's concerns. Immigration, racism, nonviolence, woman, and care for the earth. And just because of who she is, she's, she's a victim on every level. Right, yeah. It's... I just made that up. I, just, I was just imagining if, if a woman had to, had to um, yeah. leave her country. A woman of color. Right, but I think, <clears throat> I mean, even though you made her up, there's, she's real. <laughs> she so, is real. Yeah. She is real. Okay. All right. So these are questions I've been asking everyone, and I'll, I'll give them both to you because okay. it's more fair. <laughs> okay. But where in society and your life, the world, however you want to define this, this is an open-ended question to answer, but where do you experience a world that is dying, and where do you experience a world that's being born? So you can answer them separately, or they can be woven together. Areas that's dying? Yeah. Either in, yeah, in the world, our society, or yourself, and then what's being born to take its place. There's an expression, I, I think it came out of Haiti, I'm not sure. Uh, and it says, they thought, they said we were in the dark, but they didn't know we were seeds. And another variation of that, they thought we were dead, but they didn't know we were seeds. And so what, what, is, what is dying, <clears throat> I hope, <clears throat> but we can't see it quite yet, is extreme nationalism, um, extreme partisanship. It's, it's rearing its ugly head in many countries right now, especially on the immigration issue. Many countries in the world have the same attitude that our current administration has towards immigrants. Um, but what's being born is globalization is taking place. It's got, it's got its negatives, but what we are, what, what's dying is that, I hope, the sense of, separation we are recognizing more and more we are all one and that came about i think in that marvelous when humanity first stepped on the moon and looked at that beautiful blue and white planet that went into space and looked at the beautiful white planet earth and said oh my gosh it's one system no political boundaries show up anywhere you can't see a country. They don't exist. <laughs> Those are political lines humanity put on there. So we recognize our oneness. And I think more and more people are recognizing. I, I, my sister and my brother, as uh, Sister Simone Campos said at the Democratic National Convention, I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper, whether my sister or brother lived near me or on the other side of the globe. So I think that is that is being born, but it's a slow process. But I yeah. think we're moving. Yeah, I can feel that. So I, mm -hmm. I have hope, too. Yes. I hope that's true. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. I might have to get Yeah, there. yeah, that's okay. So that wraps everything up. I just wondered if you have any parting words for the people listening. 
and well i would say i'm delighted to meet laura (laughs) it gives me it gives me great hope um that we have young younger people that are going to be able to to pick up where we're going to have to leave off i'm going to be 80 next year and i i mean i still have a lot of energy and i still have a lot of enthusiasm but there will come a time when i won't be able to do this and it's nice to know that there are people along the ranks. So I was really happy to see you and your, a couple of other people at our last Interfaith Climate Justice meeting that are younger than all the gray hairs and the white hairs <laughs> you see at many of our meetings. Uh, so that gives me that gives me cur- uh, energy. That gives me hope that uh, that we're going to get through all this. Yeah, I, I recently saw the term intergenerational solidarity ah i didn't think about that very much because it's easy to kind of get stuck in your own um age group but it doesn't really make sense from a community perspective to separate that way that's right that's right one more way to separate so yeah i'm happy to be here and it's been great to meet you you too laura thank you so much thank you okay Thank you so much for listening to the Keeping Things Alive podcast. My name is Laura Evans, and if you would like more information about me, this podcast, or other work that I care about, please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org.